2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, And David numbered the people who were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, and one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Etai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim, and the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day, for the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth or an oak tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a full-on WWE wrestling belt. No, that's not the kind of belt. That's not really what it says. I'll explain it later. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing... The king commanded you, Abishai and Atai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. There's nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger here with you. And he took three spears in his hand, and he thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent." Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. The death of Absalom is one of the saddest, most tragic chapters in all of the Bible. The chapter opens with the people's refusal in verses 1 through 4 to allow David to go into battle with the people. And then the chapter continues with David's request in verse 5. And then to deal gently with his his son. And when the armies meet David, David's army routs the armies of Absalom in verses 6 through 8. And this will lead to Absalom's death. In verses 9 through 18. And in the heart of the chapter, after the refusal, the request, and the routing, comes this reprisal. And it unfolds. The helpless Absalom will fall 
prey to the heartless Joab in verses 11 through 18. And then the death of Absalom will lead to the premature report that we read about in verses 19 through 32 that Absalom is dead. And this in turn is going to lead to the king's remorse in verse 33 where David cries out in that heart-breaking statement that he wishes he were dead instead of his son. Now all of a sudden we begin to understand the full consequences of his adultery with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah. And for the people who live in the wicked, selfish world of thinking that we can sin without impunity and without consequences and and, and that there really aren't any tragic results... I've told you the story before of the doctor who faced his patient with a resolute expression and he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the patient said, tell me the bad news. And the doctor said, you have two days to live. He goes, if that's the good news, or he said, give me the good news. Wait, I'm saying the joke wrong. (laughs) Give me the good news, then tell me the bad news. Doctor says, you have two days to live. And he goes, how can that be the good news? If that's the good news, what's the bad news? And he says, I should have told you yesterday. (laughs) Good news and bad news. Absalom follows Hushai's advice from the previous chapter. Remember, Hushai is a plant and a spy. And he's told Absalom, hey, look. Gather the entire nation together and fight against your father. Put together a massive army. And that's exactly what he does. And he decides to lead the army against his father. Because he is going to overthrow his father. Now, this is one of the reasons why the Bible compares the sin of rebellion to witchcraft. You see, we live in a world and we live in a culture and we live in a society where there's at least some recognition of authority. Most of us who are Christians really do believe that there is a God. There's a sovereign God who is authoritative. This God who created the heavens and the earth, this God who sustains the heavens and the earth, has the right not only to love you and to provide for you, but to communicate with you a set of expectations. And there's a reason why rebellion becomes such a tragedy. Because when you resist God and then you reject God, you are engaging in rebellion. And this is why rebellion is such a horrible and it's a terrible thing. The Bible seems to indicate that human beings are born in rebellion. We continue to exist in rebellion. And until we each and every one of us come to a place of humility and submission and we're willing to cry out to God and allow God to forgive us, we're going to be in trouble. In this chapter, Absalom is slain. The rebellion is crushed. But the physical toll and the emotional toll will be enormous. Typically, when you hear certain Bible names, it generates an immediate response. When you hear the name Jezebel, what comes to your mind? Wickedness. We have a a wonderful outbreak of, of pregnant ladies in our church. And when the pregnant ladies, they'll typically ask each other, are you having a boy or are you having a girl? When you say you're having a girl, Jezebel is never one of the names that they decide to pick out. And if you are having a boy, no one says, we've picked out Judas to be the name of our child. Because there's certain names that people just don't use anymore, like Judas and Jezebel. But you'll notice that people aren't big on the name Absalom either. The name is a beautiful name. It means Jehovah is the father of peace. What a beautiful name. But when you hear Jezebel, you think wicked. When you hear Judas, what comes to your mind? Betrayal. When you hear the name Absalom, what do you think of? Rebellion, revolt, 
rage. And David loved his son. But David lost his son. And David lost his son well before the rebellion began. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll remember that Absalom killed his brother Amnon because he sexually assaulted his sister and he bided his time and he waited carefully and he killed his brother and he fled away. And David had a responsibility to do one of two things, either to arrest Absalom and execute Absalom or embark on a course of forgiveness and reconciliation. But rather than arrest and execute his son or embark on a course of forgiveness and reconciliation, you know what David did? He did nothing. He did nothing. And when you do nothing, when you ignore your children, then the Bible's going to still come true. That God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they reap. In this chapter, he is slain. Absalom is slain and, and the rebellion is crushed. And David's heart is crushed. It begins with David dividing his army. Look again in verse 1. It says, and David numbered the people who are with him. He has escaped to the top of the Mount of Olives, gone down into the valley, past Jericho, into the wilderness, and now he's made his way north. He's entered into a city, and it's a fortified city, and the people are beginning to gather together and rally to David's support. And David will divide his army into three units. David is a seasoned soldier. He is a general. He is a brilliant strategist. And so he divides the army... But make no mistake about it, he also has a divided heart. David has to plan a battle that ends the revolt. But he holds out a father's hope for a possible reconciliation with his wayward and his rebellious son. But he doesn't articulate exactly how that's going to happen. David, the general, waits for good news of victory. David, the father, faces the heartbreaking task of killing his own son. And it would appear that thousands remain loyal to the king and they join David's army. But David doesn't know that right from the start. As a matter of fact, David wrote a note in his journal during this very time. Did you know that? You and I call it Psalm 3. As a matter of fact, if you turn to the book of Psalms, and you look at Psalm 3, some of you have a Bible that has a heading. And on the top of the heading, it says a morning song. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Read it with me. Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. In other words, it's his note. He's saying, a lot of people are telling me, hey, guess what? I don't even think God can help you out of this one. Have you ever said that to yourself or to anyone else? I have gotten myself into a horrible mess. This is a horrible and a terrible situation that I find myself in. And I don't even know if God can get me out of this one. But look what David, and he writes Selah, which means rest or stop or pause and think about it. And in verse 3 he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. The idea is, remember he's writing the note, he's fleeing, he's headed for the north, he's looking back to Jerusalem. The holy hill is the city of David, it is the temple mount. I lay down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. He writes in his journal a song, and the song is, people have encouraged me to say, hey, even God can't help you out on this one, but guess what? I'm going to trust the Lord. I am trusting and believing the Lord, and because I can love and believe and trust the Lord, I can lay my my head down at night. It would appear that thousands remain loyal to the king. They join his army, and David sets a, a As commanders, seasoned soldiers, battle-scarred veterans, they know how to fight and they also know how to win. And Absalom's soldiers have little or no experience in war. They are untrained and they are untested leaders. And in verse 2 it says, Then David set out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab. This is the commander of the army. One-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother. And one-third under the hand of Etai, the Gittite. That's the guy at the top of the hill. When the person was throwing rocks, he said, let me just cut his head off and get this over with. These are bad dudes. These are people who can hurt you. I heard of an Italian guy in New York who was was sort of pulled over by a bunch of gangsters. You know, these are gangbangers in this little inner city uh, neighborhood. And, and they go, hey, what you doing? Hey, we want you to give us all the money in your wallet. And the guy, the Italian guy pulls out a gun and he goes, you know, I carry this around just in case my feelings get hurt. <laughs> and you hurt my feelings. These are the guys that you don't want to hurt their feelings because they will rip you to pieces. David offers to lead the army, but the offer is graciously declined. Remember when David got into trouble to begin with? Remember it was the time when, when, when kings go out to war, but he found himself on top of a rooftop and he found himself in a, in a compromising position. And so D- David at this point he, he realizes, no, I need to be involved in the battle because this is really a battle between David and Absalom. But the people know something. That a wayward arrow could kill David and the battle is over with. And so David knows that the future of Israel is in their hands and the outcome is going to be determined by the Lord using their skill and loyalty. He's a good leader. Now I want you to think about this. Even in the crisis, even in the midst of all of the crisis, David will listen to their advice without abdicating leadership. And that becomes an important clue for each and every one of you, husbands. Mothers, brothers, employers, it is a sign of good leadership to listen to people who are smarter than you without abdicating leadership. But in verse 3 it says, but the people answered, you shall not go out for if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now for you are now more help to us in the city. And so the people give basically the king three reasons why this is a really bad idea. Number one, if they make a run for it, They know that they're just lambs to the slaughter. If half of them die, they don't care because they're after David. Now, the reason why this even becomes important, even from a biblical standpoint and a Christian application standpoint, is the devil doesn't really care about you. Just he cares about you long enough to want to kill you and destroy you. But the person that the devil is most interested in is David's son. He wants to hurt David's son. And Satan knows that the best way to hurt David's son is to hurt what David's son loves. And that's you. So the people say, look, you're valuable. 
David, by the way, could also call up the reserves. The idea being, look, if we find ourselves in a difficult situation, if we find ourselves in trouble, we know that you have the ability to generate help when we can't generate the help for ourselves. And so the idea is that they know that David can do that, but they also know the truth. The truth that very few people were willing to talk about. How difficult is it going to be for David to fight against his own son? He has a divided heart. Even though David is the king, he can't cease to be Absalom's father. And in verse 4 it says, Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood beside the gate. And don't miss that little point. Because it's a point of intimacy. When it says that David stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands, the implication is David is standing by the gate and he knows that each of these men are marching presumably to their own death. Do you understand what's happening? As the people are walking by past David, David knows this person's willing to... to die for me. This person's setting aside their life for me. Do, do you under, David begins to understand, not just to understand, but he uh, uh, understands and appreciates the sacrifice that's about to be made. And that's the point. These people are willing to risk their lives for the benefit of the king. Are you? Are you willing to risk your life for the benefit of the king? Do you understand that when you march out those doors and you go into that world, that the battle that you're engaged in is because there are two kinds of people in the whole wide world. Those who recognize the authority of King Jesus and those who absolutely, positively refuse to recognize the authority of Jesus. Jesus, as you probably are very much aware, is not the king of the lives of most of the people that you encounter. We as Christians should demonstrate a sense of devotion and submission to our king. And look in verse 5, it says, Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. You might be thinking that this is simply a father's heart. You would be correct. It is a father's heart, but it's also a king's command. And this is going to be an important point later on, obviously. When David says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom, there is something inside the heart of a father who wants to believe that there must be some way to resolve the pain, the anger, and the rebellion other than death. You know, the same is true of God. God knows that the wages of sin is death. God knows the reality that you're born in sin. God knows that we're all, in that sense, spiritually, developmentally disabled. And the only way that we're ever going to come to a place of humility and submission where we turn in our rebellion. We turn from our wickedness and we turn to the Savior. The only way that we're going to ever be able to do that is if God himself gives us the opportunity. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And he says, and all the people heard it when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. In other words, again, this becomes important because David, as he's telling the commanders these things within the context of everyone being present, the expectation is that everybody is on the same page going on on, in the same direction. David is in effect saying, do you understand what my will is here? Here's my will. I want you to capture the young man alive. I want you to capture him alive. That's what I want you to do. David's final instruction to the generals in the hearing of everybody, deal kindly. 
the instruction certainly leads the here to believe that David's troops are going to win the day. Here's the idea. Even with these instructions, there is implicit in the instructions, guess what? We're going to be fine and we're going to win. We are going to seize the day and the circumstance, but it also reveals the heart of a father who's still hoping for a miracle. Reconciliation with his wayward son. And David has a tough time being both king and father. And that should cause each and every one of you to examine your own heart as well. You know, it's hard being a father and a pastor. It's hard being a mother and a boss. (laughs) We all find ourselves in circumstances where we have one compartment for work and another compartment for church and another compartment for family. And somehow all of those compartments have to come together in a way that honors and pleases God. And now think for a moment. David is willing to risk his own life in order to keep Absalom safe. Joab was going to decide differently. David says, I am willing to lay my life on the line in order to save Absalom. Joab is saying, I'm willing to kill Absalom in order to keep David safe. In order to keep the nation safe. In verse 6 it says. So the people went into the field of battle. Against Israel. And again remember Israel here. Is the nation. That was supposed to follow David. That is in fact rejected. And rebelled against their rightful king. And the battle is taking place. In the woods of Ephraim. Now Ephraim or Ephraim. Is the wooded area. Just to the north of Jerusalem. And this is going to comprise. Much of the territory. That's going to cover the northern tribes. Now this becomes an important point also. David is going to choose. The time and the place for the battle. He picks the woods. Just north of Jerusalem. The hill country. The forested area of Ephraim. Why? Now I want you to again do the math for just a moment. Absalom has the army. And because Absalom has the army, Absalom also has horses, he has chariots, and he has a great infantry, a huge standing army. Who has the advantage? Absalom has the advantage. By picking the hill country and the wooded area, David is going to eliminate the advantage of a larger army and heavy equipment. And because he's going to eliminate the advantage of a a larger army and heavy equipment, the, the advantages are going to shift to David. And by the way, you can see this kind of warfare fought over and over again. Do you know how the North Vietnamese were able to overcome us? We had helicopters. RPGs. We had the the largest standing army and military establishment on the planet Earth, but we fought the Vietnamese on Vietnamese terms. You know why the Russians were defeated by the Afghanis? Because the Afghani people fought the Russians on the Afghani terms. How is it possible that a ragtag team can defeat an army with superior numbers and superior equipment? You're going to have to think carefully and outside of the box. Absalom is really unprepared to wage war. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Absalom wants to be king. But you know what he doesn't have? He doesn't have his father's mind. And he doesn't have his father's heart. And he doesn't have his father's commitment to the Lord. You know, sometimes we want to be the king or the queen of our own life, don't we? Sometimes we wake up in the morning and we think we know better than God. Sometimes we think we're kinder than God. That we're more gentle than God. Then we're more merciful than God. But if for whatever reason you find yourself in a position where you begin to suspect 
that God is not loving and that God is not kind and that God is not merciful and that the plan that God has enacted in order to make sinners saints, in order to forgive the unforgivable and redeem the unredeemable and to reconcile the people who are distant from God, think again. (laughs) And look at the death of Absalom. Beginning in verse 7 it says, And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. The outcome is recorded in a single staggering sentence. In a single day, 20,000 people die. You think that's a pretty high price for rebellion? The battle is of staggering proportions. I want you to put it in perspective. 50,000 Americans died throughout the whole conflict in Vietnam. Some of the major battles in World War II can't even compare with that. In our own civil war, we had a situation at Antietam where 50,000 Americans, north and south, fell in the civil war. This is a staggering situation. Those loyal to David are fighting against Israel. And Israel, of course, not loyal to David because they've been seduced by a charming usurper. In verse 8 it says, For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword. Well, what does that mean? The text seems to indicate that the Lord is using the situation in non-usual ways. The soldiers who fight for Israel and Absalom are sort of swallowed up by the woods. Spurgeon suggested that the people there met with fearful circumstances. There's cliffs we know. There's caverns we know. Other Bible teachers suggest that there were pits and swamps and wild animals. And by the way, in 1000 BC, when, when, when this battle is taking place, there was a huge forested area and there were lions and there were bears. And the, the implication is that God enlists the animal kingdom To begin to swallow up these guys. And then in verse 9 it says, Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. And note, according to popular legend, his hair gets caught in the terebinth tree. Remember what I told you? That he had this sort of Fabio hair. It was long and flowing and fabulous. Because in that culture and society... The thing that made you virile was long, flowing hair. But it doesn't say his hair got caught. It says his head got caught. And so it says he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. The idea, whether it was his neck that's caught in the tree, whether its head is somehow lodged in the tree, but the the donkey just keeps on going. And there is Absalom suspended between heaven and earth and rejected by both. That's the exact position of a carnal Christian. A rebellious Christian. You're clearly not honoring God and you're no help at all to Satan. (laughs) Ginsburg writes in the legend of the Jews, quote, Absalom's end was beset with terrors. When he was caught in the branches of the oak tree, he was about to sever his hair with a sword stroke. But suddenly he saw hell yawning beneath him, and he preferred to hang in the tree than to throwing himself into the abyss alive. Absalom's crime was indeed of a nature to deserve the supreme torture, that means go to hell, for which reason he was one of the few Jews who will have no portion in the kingdom to come. Now again, Ginsburg is wrong. It isn't Absalom is going to hell or that the gates of hell opened wide to welcome Absalom. Clearly he is in rebellion. And clearly he is going to experience a punishment. And clearly he has come literally to the end of his rope. Now, usually it's when we're in the midst of rebellion that we think that we're fine. 
Absalom thought that before the day was out, he was going to be the king of Israel. And people who live apart from God and people who live apart from Christ, it never occurs to them that the life that they've decided to live apart from God and apart from Jesus might have a shocking and abrupt and dramatic conclusion. You know, Fernando Ortiz, who used to be the youth pastor here, who has planted a church, has a, a young man who was, who was ministering and helping at the church and doing the sound at their church. And um, yesterday, they discovered his body. He was involved in a rock climbing uh, expedition, and, and tragically, he fell to his death, and he died yesterday, 18 years old. But you all have stories like that of people who die young, who die dramatically, who die unexpectedly. And if you search the circumstances of your own life, when you look at how close that car came or how you avoided that accident or that illness that could have and should have killed you, the circumstances that could have and should have killed you, but it didn't kill you because God in his grace and his mercy spared your life. Because God's plan and purpose wasn't that you would continue in your rebellion and disobedience. The Lord wanted to shake you. The Lord wanted to remind you and say, I love you so much. And I'm willing to save you. Joab knows what has to be done. It says in verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab. And he said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? And why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. What this means is a promotion. The 10 shekels of silver was a generous, generous amount of money. And typically in that culture and society, a person's rank was noted by belts. You know, in our culture and society, if you have stripes, you're a colonel or a sergeant. Um, if you're in the army, if you have a little butter bar on top of your shoulder, that means you're a second lieutenant. If you have two, you're a first lieutenant. We look at, there's little insignia that recognizes rank. And that's exactly what these belts were. It was insignia recognizing rank. And so he was in effect saying, look, if you would have done this, I would have promoted you. In verse 12, it says, But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Here is a person, he goes, I heard from the king. And the king communicated specifically, Take him alive. If I knowingly, willfully, deliberately disregard the king's orders because I think what I know what's best. Here's what I know. David isn't going to deal well with me. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. It's his way of saying, what good is it to have a thousand shekels of silver if I don't get to live to spend it? For there is nothing hidden from the king and you yourself would would have set yourself against me. In other words, he's saying, and if I would have killed him, you would have killed me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. The idea being, I'm not going to listen to this. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart. The word heart here is kind of misleading because usually we think of the heart being that organ that pumps right in the middle of our chest and you're thinking three spears to the heart and he's still alive. I don't believe that. Well, the word heart means the midsection. It's the, it's the chest and the abdominal area. And so apparently Job has thrust him through and somehow managed to miss the vital organ because he's surrounded now by the armor bearers and they will strike him and kill him. Now remember what Absalom is. He's a murderer. Remember what Absalom is. He's a traitor. Remember what Absalom is. He sexually assaulted 
ten women in broad daylight in front of the whole country. He's a murderer and a rapist and a traitor. But look what it says. So Joab blew the trumpet. And the trumpet meaning, hey, guess what? The war is now over. And the people returned from pursuing Israel. In other words, the moment that Absalom is dead, the armies are in disarray. They're disoriented in their leadership. They're running. Joab holds back the people. In other words, he doesn't run the people down and slaughter them, but rather he allows them return to their home. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in, in the uh, King's Valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it's called Absalom's monument. By the way, it's still there. There is a pinnacle in the Kidron, in the valley between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. It is a memorial, if you will. It's um, a, almost like a little square box with a pinnacle. And to this day, it's called Absalom's um, tomb. Now, Joab knows what has to be done. So these sharpened spears hit the midsection. He, Joab knows sparing Absalom is going to please David. But Joab also knows it's harmful for Israel. Now you have to remember something. Who was Absalom's strongest supporter? Who remembers? Do you remember when Absalom was running for his life and he was at his grandfather's kingdom in Jeshur? Who was it that recommended to David, the time has come to let your son come home? It's Joab. Joab was the one who said, now is the time to end the exile. You know, Joab, at one point in his career, thought Absalom would be the logical choice to succeed his father and the throne of Israel. So do you think that there's something going on inside of Joab as well? He's in rebellion. I'm the one who convinced his father to let him come home. I'm the one who convinced him that he's the logical heir to the throne. I am the one who convinced him that he was king material. So I'm going to ask you a hard question. How do you suppose we're supposed to think about Joab's action? Clearly, Absalom is getting his just reward. If this were a made-for-TV movie, as you see him hanging between heaven and earth, and you see Joab running him through with the spears, this is the point in the audience where everybody starts clapping because the bad guy is dead. Absalom was a murderer and a rapist and a traitor. He deserves it. Joab knows how David is indulgent towards his children. When it comes to his kids, is David capable of thinking clearly? Not if the Bible record is any indication. Someone suggested that we think that Joab did was, and listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because I don't want it to sound contradictory, and I need to explain myself. Someone has suggested that we think that Joab was correct, but not right. Well, how can that be? How can you be correct but not right? The explanation is he was correct in understanding that it was better for David and for Israel that Absalom was dead. He was not right in disobeying the king because the God-appointed authority over him said, don't do this. And Joab had plenty of history. Dave, he knew how David dealt with King Saul. He knew how David felt about people in authority. Joab also knew that God was capable of moving and removing. Joab's right course of action, I'm going to honor the king. But what if my husband is wrong, wrong, wrong? What if the government is wrong, wrong, wrong? What if that police officer is wrong, wrong, wrong? 
You see, submission doesn't even become an issue until you don't agree. <laughs> you know, I theoretically, theologically believe in submission to authority. Unless, of course, I disagree. <laughs> All of a sudden, we begin to understand something. We often place ourselves in a position where we think we know what's best. And we fail to remember that God can deal with those who are in authority. And we don't have to disobey them unless commanded to by Scripture or by a clear conscience. Clark writes, long ago he should have died by the hand of justice. And now all his crimes are visited on him in his last act of rebellion. Yet in the present circumstances, Joab's act was base and disloyal and a cowardly murder, unquote. But you know, it is ironic that in the end, the rebel Absalom has his life taken away in a rebellious act by Joab. Do you remember what Jesus said? Remember when he said to Peter, put down your sword. Because people who live by the sword, yeah, they perish by the sword. Remember what the scripture says? God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they will reap. Absalom got what he deserved and Joab would be held accountable for what he did to Absalom both by God and eventually by David. And if you want to know how that's all going to turn out, um, just jot down 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, if you're wondering how it's all going to end for Joab. But in verse 18, look what it says. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it's called Absalom's monument. By the way, that's exactly what you would expect from a self-centered, self-promoting person like Absalom. We know that he had three sons in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 27. But surmise that apparently all of his children at this point are dead. But he sets up a monument while he's still alive. And, uh, and so it says in verse 19... Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him for his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall not take the news, for you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Joab realizes David doesn't do well with bad news. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab. And ran. You have to understand something. David loves his son. And you'll remember that when we come to the end, the first words out of David's mouth aren't, How many people died in the battle? How many did we lose? How many people have been hurt because of this situation? His first words are, Is the young man Absalom safe? It's hard to keep focus and understand what's at stake when we protect the rebellion in our own children. David wants good news from the battlefield, not bad news. And in order for there to be real peace and safety, the rebellion has to be dealt with. And in, and in verse, 1 Samuel 15, 23, you'll remember it says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity, because you've rejected the word of the Lord. Remember, that's exactly what the prophet said to Saul. He says, because you've rejected God, God's going to reject you. And by the way, a high mass is the son of Zadok, the high priest. He's the guy who delivers the news from David's double agents to make sure David safely crosses the Jordan with his entourage. So Ahiaz is also, he's an important intelligence officer. And so now he wants to tell the king how things have turned out. But again, not necessarily a good idea. So Joab says to the Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bows himself. Now people have mixed reviews, but let me tell you my take on this. The people of Cush hailed from the southern regions of Egypt and Ethiopia. In other words, these are the people who are in the southernmost part of Egypt and the northernmost part of, of Ethiopia. They're black. 
These are black people. Cushites were in the army of Israel even at that time. Now, in a, in a very real sense, this is a good thing. This is not like a Star Trek thing. It used to be in Star Trek that if, if they had a black officer on board the Starship Enterprise and they went to a foreign land and, and the black brother beamed down, you could bet your life he was going to get killed by the aliens. But this isn't what's happening here. Because the Cushite is a foreigner and because the Cushite is a servant, this might come as a shock and a surprise to you, he's less likely to die. In other words, David, in a fit of either sorrow or rage, might give himself permission to think that he could kill one of his own subjects, but not a foreigner or a servant. And in verse 23, it says, but whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. In other words, Ahiaz, the son of Zadok, goes one direction. The Cushite goes the other, and he outruns him. J. Vernon McGee tells this kind of funny story about this. I don't know who, if you know who J. Vernon McGee is, but he's a, he was a popular radio Bible teacher when I was a kid growing up. And when I was driving down the road, going back and forth to work, I would always hear J. Vernon come on, on the radio. And he says on this particular passage, he says, he, he tells this story, he says, the Negro boy down in my Southland years ago wanted to join a church. So the deacons were examining him and they said, how did you get saved? His answer was, God did his part and I did my part. They thought there was something wrong with his doctrine. So they questioned him further. What was God's part and what was your part? His explanation was a good one. He said, God's part was the saving, and my part was the sinning. I ran from him as fast as my sinful heart and my rebellious legs would take me. He done took out after me. And he ran me down. J. Vernon says, my friend, that's the way I got saved also. I like that. My friend, that's the way I got saved also. I was running as far as my wicked heart and my rebellious legs would take me. And God ran after me. What a true story. Spurgeon said, he might have said, Is the young man Absalom dead? For if he's out of the way, there'll be peace in my realm and rest to my troubled life. But no, he's a father and he must love his own offspring. It's a father that speaks. And a father's love can survive the enmity of a son. Spurgeon says again, our children may plunge into the worst sins, but they're still our children. They may scoff at our God. They may tear our heart to pieces with their wickedness, but we can't take complacency in them, but at the same time, we can't unchild them, nor erase their image from our hearts. In other words, you can't make your child not your child. And he runs. And as he's running, David's sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof to the gate. He lifts up his eyes. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there's there's news in his mouth. And he came out rapidly and drew near. And when the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There, there's another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. And he comes with good news. In other words, he was one who was trusted with the most intimate secrets of the kingdom. So Ahimaaz comes and says to the king, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord the king. Then the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know it was about. In other words, he can't bring himself to tell the king. He knows his son is dead. 
He takes a deep breath and he just says, hey, there was so much stuff going on, I'm unable to tell you. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. The last time David had a conversation like that, remember it was when Saul was dead and Jonathan was dead. And when he heard the news, he had the man put to death. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. It's an idiomatic expression when it says deeply moved. In the original language, it's a Hebraism, but it means way more than deeply moved. It's the idea of a violent trembling. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you sort of lost control, where you couldn't control the tears and you couldn't control your heart and you couldn't control the sweat, you couldn't control your body, you lost function of your own physical circumstances. And so when it says that he was deeply moved, the idea is his, his whole body began to tremble as he is completely undone over the news that has taken place. He goes up to the chamber over the gate and he weeps because he's trying to get at least some semblance of privacy. And note what he says, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh Absalom, my son, my son. How many times does he say my son? My son, my son. My son, my son, my son. When he says, if only I had died in your place, do you think he really means it? Do you think in the broken heart of a father who desperately wanted to somehow reverse what could not be reversed do you think in his heart of hearts and in his soul of souls he really meant it I do clearly David knows his own heart and the seeds of the rebellion doesn't he remember what I said when he was dealing with Absalom, he could have arrested him and convicted him, or he could have forgiven him and placed him on a, on a path of reconciliation, but he didn't do it. David knew the horrific consequences of adultery and murder, and he remembers the prophecy that was given by Nathan the prophet, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Prophecy true or false? Consequences painful? Horrific? Now think carefully. Absalom is dead. 20,000 people are dead. One Calvary pastor writes, David's sorrow shows us that it isn't enough that parents train their child to be godly. They must first train themselves in godliness. We cannot stand in the presence of that suffering without learning the solemn lessons of parental responsibility it has to teach, not merely in training our own children, but in the earlier training of ourselves for their sake. In other words, he's saying it isn't just about raising up your kids to be godly. It isn't just simply telling them the truth about the Bible. Somehow, some way, you have to live your life in a way that reflects to your children that you really, truly, fundamentally, unequivocally believe what the Bible says. This surely had a deeper note in it than just the half-conscious repetition of words occasioned by grief. It was G. Campbell Morgan who wrote, The father recognized how much he was responsible for his son. It's as though he has said, He is my son. 
His weaknesses are my weaknesses. His passions are my passions. His sins are my sin. David's wondering. How come there's forgiveness? And how come there's reconciliation? And how come there's restoration for him? But not for his son. Philip Keller writes, In his agony and anguish, in his outpouring of sorrow, David seems oblivious to the grief of others. The grief process causes something inside of David to forget about the battle, to forget about the victory, to forget about the losses. 20,000 people have died that day. 20,000 families have lost loved ones. But the only person he can think about is himself. But David in this sense, is very much like his future famous son. You know, in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And there wasn't pleasure for David in the death of his son. Make no mistake about it. David's son is wicked. And David's grief is going to run the risk of costing him the kingdom all over again. He's paralyzed by pain and he's paralyzed by grief. But there is a tiny, tiny picture of God in the verse when he says, if only I could die in your place. You know, the future famous son of David, Jesus, in heaven knows the truth about you and your wickedness. And he is able to do something about your rebellion, your wickedness, your disobedience, your wretchedness, your detachment, your estrangement from God. No matter how wicked, no matter how horrible, no matter how terrible, the future son of David will say, if only I could die for you. And he will. And it will become the satisfying solution to the painful injuries that we have perpetuated against God. You know, psychology is really not a good substitute for obedience. I heard the story of a mother and a father who decided to use psychology in raising up their children. For example, at bedtime, they would say to the child, would you like to take your doll to bed or your teddy bear to bed? You see, the beauty of this is in either case, the child is choosing to go to bed. But the whole system collapsed when the three-year-old little girl, who was never allowed to go out after supper, said to her parents one evening, do you want me to go out the front door or do you want me to go out the back door? There comes a point where it's not about going out the front door or the back door, but the parent says, you're staying. Who said? Don't test me. Don't test me. Some of you know exactly. You can hear the voice of your grandma or grandpa or your mother or your father. Don't test me. The cry of David's heart is to be able to die for his son's sins. And the cry of David's son is exactly the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. In the cry of David, we hear the cry of God for his lost children and his desire to restore and to forgive but there's way more, but that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there is really no substitute for obedience. Lord, we know that sometimes in our rebellion and our disobedience, it takes us to places where we think we know better than you. But we know that's not true. Lord, you know what's best for us. Our Heavenly Father, you know our heart. You know our past. 
and you know our future. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has gone through a private period of rebellion and disobedience. And Heavenly Father, we know that sometimes the way of the transgressor is hard. But we can cry out with a united voice that you haven't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity, but that the cry of Jesus, the cry of Jesus, that we don't have to die in our sin, we don't have to perish in our circumstances, we don't have to live estranged and in rebellion, that we can be brought close, brought near by the death of Jesus and by the sacrifice of Jesus and by the love of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would model for our children not just simply belief and not just doctrinal correctness, but a heart, a heart, a heart that is willing to obey because my Heavenly Father says so. In Jesus' name. Amen.